This is Soundside, I'm Libby Denkman. The University of Washington Huskies are looking to take a bite out of the Michigan Wolverines in the college football national championship game tonight in Houston. Both teams are going into this game undefeated. And in a moment, we're going to take a look at the financials of NCAA football and how the name, image, and likeness system has allowed fan groups to boost their team's rosters. But first... The Huskies are playing possibly the best football in program history. It's been more than three decades since the school's last national championship. To talk about how we got here, I caught up with my old pal Danny O'Neill, who's a contributing writer for Seattle Magazine. He also has a newsletter, The Dang Apostrophe, which is available on Substack. I recommend you check it out there. And I asked Danny for one word to sum up this Husky football class. Joy. And if I had to use a modifier, I would say unexpected. Because two years ago, Washington lost at home to Montana, fired its coach in the middle of the season, and really looked kind of lost. And here, two years later, they are in the midst of what is certainly their greatest season in 30 years, and maybe their best ever. And it's just been incredible, because not only have they been that successful, all these games have been close. Maddeningly exciting, excruciating It's been the most emotional experience I've ever had as a sports fan. And I've probably spent way too much of my life emotionally invested in sports. (laughs) I mean, I think that those close games, I'm I'm thinking back to Oregon. I'm thinking back to the Apple Cup to, you know, obviously the, the Texas Longhorns game that, you know, the Sugar Bowl they just survived. It has been like a a cardiac event waiting to happen for (laughs) Husky fans all year. Um, Is there a standout play or a game that you think really crystallizes this team's special sauce? Like what makes this Husky class so special? For me, and I'm biased here because it was a game that not only was I at, but the play happened right in front of me. It was the first regular season game against Oregon, and it was it was late in the game, but it wasn't it wasn't the pass for the game winning touchdown to Roma Dunze that happened. It was actually a fourth down pass. And Michael Penix, the quarterback who has been incredible, has had the best year any Husky quarterback has ever had. He'd just gotten squished. One of Oregon's big defensive linemen had fallen on top of him. He looked hurt. Washington was going for it on fourth down. And I remember my reaction being They need to call timeout. I don't like how this looks. Penix is clearly injured. And they go for it on fourth down, and Penix drops back to pass, and he just throws this absolutely perfectly placed throw to Jalen Polk for the first down. And my feeling was, oh, they know better than me. Like, this team has got it. All of my, I am accustomed to worrying about everything and having my worst fears confirmed. To have a situation like that, and it's very personal, but for me, that play was like, don't don't sweat it. Like, this team's got it. And consistently, over the course of this season, at moments when I felt like, oh, they're going to lose it. Oh, they can't keep winning by the skin of their team. They can't just keep doing this. They have consistently come through, whether it's their offense or defense, and it's it's really just been unbelievable. Yeah, and that is a a play that gives us a really great case study and why Danny O'Neill is not a college football head coach and (laughs) Kalen DeBoer is. 
So um, <laughs> glad true. you brought that it's up. <laughs> um, for me, the one play is uh, that uh, fake handoff at fourth and one from the Husky Zone 29-yard line um, in the Apple Cup, which freed up Rome Adunze for that big gain. I could not believe they called a fake play at that point. And I just started thinking, like, man, this DeBoer guy is really built differently. Um you know, let's talk about Kalen DeBoer because longtime Husky football fans are flashing back to the last Washington team to have the national championship title, although it was before the playoff system, so they had to share it with Miami. That was the 1991 team under the legendary coach Don James. It's been 32 years, lots of ups and downs for this program since then. I mean, the Huskies went 4-8 and eight in 2021 and then enter Kalen DeBoer as head coach how has he shaped a winning program in such a rapid amount of time? Well, a lot of it comes down to his ability to communicate with people because you mentioned Don James and and he certainly the dog father was sort of this cornerstone in this bedrock. But he built this program over 20, 25 years. And with DeBoer, it happened right away. This is his second season. And I. I think his secret sauce is his ability to communicate with his players. Clearly, he's a great football coach in terms of his scheme and the strategy that he implements. But most guys who get put in charge of a of a Pac-12 program, they understand the sport at a pretty fundamental strategic level. DeBoer's ability to communicate with players, and it started with retaining some of the talent you mentioned, Roma Dunze, who took the handoff on that fourth down play against Washington State. I would not have blamed him for transferring. And he's recruited, comes here, and they have that horrible four and eight season. He's being underused as a wide receiver. Everything in college football today would say, hey, you go somewhere else and don't start rebuilding and and get get to a program that's going to utilize you right away. And Kalen DeBoer's ability to sell his offense, his program, and what it would do allowed them to retain and then add a ton of talent. And you watch how he reacts with his players. He is someone who is not a screamer. He is someone who is very calm and composed. And I think that his ability to sort of instill that kind of even-keeled temperament has really shown through in their ability to win close games this season. Yeah, and he obviously has the trust of um, Michael Penix Jr., who you know, not only came to Washington because of Kalen DeBoer, but also stayed instead of going into the NFL draft, right? Yeah, Penix is fascinating. So he played and had a great year when Kalen DeBoer was the offensive coordinator at Indiana University. And since then, Penix is, has been banged up. He suffered a number of injuries, which some people end up calling a player fragile, which I think is the most unfair thing in the world because – you're a quarterback. You have 250 to 300 pound carnivores chasing you on every play, trying to do. And then when you happen, your body physically breaks down because of the beating that they subject to you. They're like, oh, he's fragile. He's not fragile. He just took a lot of hits. And he he decided to transfer and he came to Washington because Kalen DeBoer's offense he knew what he could do in that situation, in that system. And Penix has been an absolutely unbelievable not only staying healthy but just his ability to orchestrate that game against texas in new orleans 
Washington's been fortunate to have a number of incredible quarterbacks from Billy Joe Hobart to Marcus Tuiasa Sopo to Jake Locker. Just great quarterbacks. No Washington quarterback has ever played as well as Penix did in that game against Texas. He was absolutely unbelievable. Let's talk about the Wolverine in the room, Jim Harbaugh's Michigan. What are the keys? Michigan's known for its defense. Washington's known for its high-flying offense, especially the passing game. What are the keys for the Huskies today to be successful? To be able to stop Michigan's run. Michigan and Jim Harbaugh is a quarterback, but is as a coach, he's someone who loves old-fashioned sort of just slam into impose your will on your opponent, both in terms of offense and defense. And I'm not worried about Michael Penix's ability to stand up against Michigan's pass rush. I am worried about whether Washington's defense can stop Michigan's run game. They didn't do that great a job against Texas's run, but Texas still wanted to throw if Jim Harbaugh can win this game without throwing a forward pass, he will do it. So I'm most worried about the ability to stop Blake Corum and and Michigan's run game. Yeah, after Texas, that's what is giving me a pit in my stomach is uh, will we be able to stop the the ground game? When you talk about odds, Michigan is technically favored in this game, but I've started to see some commentators, some columnists who are optimistic about the Huskies' chances today. Is that true, Danny? I mean, do people think that the Huskies might actually be able to beat Michigan? God, I hope not. (laughs) Everybody's been overlooking Washington all year. They beat Oregon in the regular season. Oregon gets favored by nine points in the championship game. No, I I have started to see it. I was even, I was was talking to someone on a Portland radio station who was a a dirty, no-good duck fan who said that he thought Washington was going to win, which I told him that I I wanted him to keep his lips off of off of the Huskies winning chances and not curse us. But no, I think there has been some momentum. Washington has the best quarterback in this game. And I also think they have the best receiver in Roma Dunze. And they've gotten a ton of experience from players who decided to come back. And I think they've got a great chance in this game. I certainly I know Michigan is favored by four points, but I stopped doubting. Washington's ability to to come through in these games right about the time they beat Oregon for the second time. But I, I have started to see some people starting to recognize that. It makes me uncomfortable. I, I'm not going to lie. It makes me uncomfortable. I know. I like the underdog position. Like you mentioned, Danny, like we've been the underdog this whole uh, second half of the the season looking looking to, towards the national championship. And I, I would way rather be in the underdog position again. So everybody just quiet down about the Huskies. Don't don't talk about us. Keep sleeping on us. We're, we're just going to put our heads down and do our business. Yeah, exactly. Danny O'Neill is a contributing writer for Seattle Magazine, and he has a newsletter, The Dang Apostrophe, which is available on Substack. Go and check that out on Substack. Danny, thanks very much for being here, and go dogs. Libby, it is great to talk to you. And yes, go dogs. Get the Wolverines.
Now, like Danny mentioned, the University of Washington Huskies are somewhat of a surprise contender for the College Football National Championship. One of the reasons for their success may be thanks to a new gray area tactic that helps teams recruit and retain players. They're called fan collectives. All four teams in the college football playoffs this year, Texas, Alabama, Michigan, and yes, Washington, have active fan collectives. Washington's largest is called Montlake Futures. David Farenthold and Billy Witz are reporters for The New York Times, and they've been digging into fan collectives. Hi, David and Billy. Welcome to the show. Thanks for being here. Nice to be here, Libby. Thanks for having us. So, Billy, I want to start with you. Tell us, what exactly is a fan collective and what is their goal in college football? Well, it's really a startup industry, and it, its roots are traced back to the summer of 2021 when a Supreme Court decision really kind of paved the way for some state laws to go into effect that allowed college athletes for the first time to cash in on endorsements. This is something that had never been allowed uh, under NCAA rules because it felt like it interfered with the concept of amateurism. But as the business of college sports has become bigger and bigger and bigger, you know, it was harder to justify millions upon millions of uh, really billions of being produced in, in college sports and athletes not being able to cash in on that in some ways, even if it's just like a percentage of, of jersey sales or something like that. So when this was allowed, it was essentially a startup industry, you know, which with very few rules and guidelines. And so what sort of became a more efficient way to direct money to players uh, was the start of fans joining together and uh, pooling their money and then distributing it that way to try to get better football players or or basketball players. So they're basically rich fans who really want to see the team succeed, and they have a way to now directly pay these players to play for a specific college team. I, I mean, it's a really remarkable development in the world of college sports. And David, as somebody who's covered nonprofits for a long time, I'm curious, how does a collective of college sports fans compare to the kind of charities and nonprofits that you usually look at? Well, it's a good question because a lot of these collectives are charities. They're tax-exempt charities. More than 70 of them are organized and approved by the IRS as charities. So donors that are giving money to them to get a better linebacker can also get a tax-deductible donation. Now, that is different than a lot of the charities I write about because it should be. Charities are about serving the public good. You know, the, the money is tax deductible because it's seen as serving the public, not just the interest of a private few. And so paying linebackers is not an acceptable use of charity money. One of the big crises in this field is that the IRS, which is a notoriously lax approval process for new charities, approved all these groups, these collectives as charities, and then turned around in May of this year and said, hey, wait, wait, wait. This isn't charity. You can't, you can't, you know, you, this is not an acceptable use of your money. Even if you're paying the linebacker to go do some volunteer work, the point of your of your charity is to pay linebackers and not to serve the public good. So they're now caught in the situation where the IRS hasn't come to these groups specifically and said, hey, you need to change. But it said the whole industry needs to change and people are trying to figure out how to do that. And to be clear about how these fan collectives work, I mean, nominally, are they paying players to just be really good football players for a college team? Um, 
you know, is it a direct pay to play relationship or is there something else going on here, David? Well, yes, they, they are not nominally pay for play. That's still prohibited by the NCAA. So instead, they are paying the players for some service. But the what makes it sort of a wink and a nod, it really is pay for play because they're often paying the players far, far more than they would pay anybody else through the same service. Just to give you a, kind of an extreme example that illustrates the whole industry, we talked to somebody who ran a collective at Michigan State who said, yeah, I pay a football player $750,000 a year. Uh, and nominally, I'm paying him for charity work. I'm paying him to help my charity. But what the, the player actually did was make one social media post per month, which the guy who ran the collective admitted was not even that useful. So yes, nominally, they're paying them to do charity work or other work for the collective. But in practice, they're paying them to come to their school because they're paying them far more than they pay anybody else to do the same task. And also what's interesting, too, is that the NCA has basically abdicated on uh, a key element here, and, and that's looking at what fair market value is. For years, and it's actually still on the books, that if you have an outside job, as a college athlete, you're required to be paid the fair market rate. And that was, you know, to prevent, you know, somebody being paid $100 an hour to watch sprinklers go on and off. The NCA has specifically said in this case, the fair market value doesn't apply. So there's really no standard of whether, you know, that social media post, you know, might be worth, you know, $10 or $100,000. Billy, how has this system of fan collectives changed the way that players in college football approach the game? I mean, we talked about the fact that for many, many years, teams and schools were making a lot of money off of these young players without the players seeing much of anything besides scholarships. Um, now they can get paid. What are they saying about how it's changed the way that they approach the game and what it means to their lives. In the, the typical recruiting process prior to this would have been, you know, a player would ask, you know, ask coaches, okay, where do you see me fitting in? Am I going to be playing right away? And things like that. How am I going to develop so that I can be a pro down the road? Those sorts of things. Now, coaches tell us that the number, the first question asked is, what's my NIL deal going to be? And I think what we even what we've even seen, uh, you know, more recently is that, you know, Washington put together, uh, you know, they don't have their collective doesn't have uh, Montlake Futures doesn't have the same amount of cash that, say, like a Michigan or a Texas or Alabama has. So, so they had to they had to use it very strategically. So they looked at we have probably about a half dozen guys, including Michael Penix, Roma Dunze who, you know, could have gone to the NFL last year, but you know what, let's try to make it so that that money that they might get in the NFL, it's not the reason, the only reason that they go, at least we can give them something. So they were very strategic in how they use their money. Other schools kind of spread it, you know, more around the roster and, you know, try to build up depth, but it's fundamentally changed the way rosters are put together. And college coaches will tell you that NIL collectives are the, the most important thing to their program. Hmm. That's remarkable for something that's just been developing over the last few years as the NIL system comes into place. So University of Washington, as you mentioned, it doesn't have quite as 
powerhouse uh, fan collective as these other big programs like Michigan. But it still has a big impact on the team and the way that the team gets put together. What are some of the drawbacks for college football overall that you could see? I mean, while players may be getting paid, there's also sort of a certain amount of lack of transparency, right, David, that you have reported on when it comes to actually finding the value for your labor. That's right. Basically, players and their parents, you know, people who are making their decisions are, it's great they're getting money, but they get it in basically an unregulated black market for labor. So they're going into this, you know, talking to collectives without really any sense of what they're actually worth. In fact, collectives, most of them don't release any information to the public about what they pay to their own players. And they've gone so far as that the schools themselves, you know, which sometimes track what players get paid, have refused to respond to our public information requests saying, we're not we're not going to tell you how much our players make because it will hurt the competitiveness of the football team. Uh, that's how secretive this is. We even talked to a guy at Southern Methodist who runs a collective who said, we tell our players not to ask each other what they're getting paid by the same collective. So if you're a player and trying to navigate that market, there's really no way of knowing what does a point guard deserve? You know, what does a starting center make on the open NIL market? So these guys are trying to go out there and, and maximize their value in a system where there really is not that much information they can trust about what their value is. Hmm. Which is, yeah, really not a great way to approach a labor market from a worker perspective, because that's ultimately what we're talking about here now that, you know, these players so long, you know, we heard the refrain that this is going to ruin college sports, that these are amateurs, that um, paying them would would destroy everything. But ultimately, they are they are workers in this sense. It's just that they're not able to actually tell what the value of their labor is in a transparent way. David, what is the next step here in terms of the IRS and regulating this market? Um, What kinds of changes might we see in the near future? Well, we're already seeing changes among groups that are the collectives that are still applying for charitable status in the IRS. So people that are going through the system now seeking the IRS's approval, we talked to one at the University of Michigan, they have to make huge changes. So whereas a lot of the original collectives, even the charitable ones said, we're going to raise you know, 100% of the money we raise, we're going to pay to the athletes. We're going to pay them to do charity work, but the money all goes to the athletes. So this group at the University of Michigan said, passed the IRS's muster now, they had to give 70% of their money away to other charities, just straight giveaways to other charities, and spend 30% of their money paying athletes to do charitable work. Well, so Im- imagine if that's the standard they're going to apply. If you want to keep paying your athletes, University of Washington or Texas or wherever, now you have to raise so much more money because you've got to give 70% of it away before you can start paying players. The IRS has so far that we know of not moved to start enforcing that standard on existing collectives that already have that approval, but they certainly could. And if it starts happening over the next year or so, you know, that could be a real squeeze on these collectives as they try to figure out, can they survive in that world? Billy, what has the fan collective system done on the field? I mean, are we just going to see if this continues, and to a certain degree, we we may see big changes, as David just mentioned. Um, but if this kind of payment system does continue, where these rich collectives of fans for certain big programs can really just pump a ton of money into recruiting and retaining players, will this continue to just make a parity problem for college football in general? Like the idea of a small program actually having a shot at a big game or a national championship just seems even further out of reach than it ever has been. Well, that's true. But I think what's important to think about here is the context that all this is happening in. And the college model is built on this concept of amateurism. And right now that's being 
turned upside down in a number of a number of ways through lawsuits, through the threat of uh, congressional intervention, and everything really about college sports is uncertain right now. And you know, we may well see uh, revenue sharing. There's so much uh, inequity about the system that the players who produce the revenue, who are at the heart of this billion dollar enterprise right now aren't pay being paid at all indirectly by the schools. It's just the only the only money that they're getting is uh, at least above the table is through uh, through these collectives. So there's questions right now. The NCAA president, Charlie Baker, has, has recently proposed that schools set aside at least $30,000 for at least half their athletes per year that would go into kind of an educational trust fund that they would have access to upon, say, graduation. And this proposal was just the uh, starting point. Uh, Baker hoped for a conversation about how college sports is going to look in the future. And, and some of that may be, say, the top 32 or 64 programs in the country end up breaking off and, you know, forming you know, something that looks like an NFL light. But really, I guess everything is so in flux and seemingly everything is on the table. So it's hard to say in that world what this NIL uh, may look like. And another another key concept of Baker's proposal is that right now these collectives have to be outside the university, at least, you know, technically at arm's length. And Baker is proposing that they be brought in-house, which brings up a whole nother issue of that they have to be Title IX compliant. And right now, probably in many programs, 85 to 90 percent of the money goes to football and men's basketball. So just really, uh, you know, really a mess trying to, un, you know, unspool what the system is. David, as Billy's suggesting here, it seems like the NCAA moving to the NIL system and allowing payments to players, but without making them directly employees of the universities, have just set up this system that's ripe for kind of shady outside dealings that get around just a straight up fact of, hey, a really successful industry like college football should probably just pay people directly. I mean, that's editorializing on my part. But um, why don't they just pay people directly? Uh, well, I'll answer this question and then uh, Billy chime in if I got anything wrong. The NCAA has fought this for so long, A, because they want to keep the money. The, you know, the, that gives the, you know, not paying the players allows the NCAA and the schools to keep this giant amount of money that they make. But also they're, they don't want to have to deal with the complications of having employees, having these people be employees. You know, could, what if they formed a union? You had to have collective bargaining. You know, what if they, you know, wanted to have workers comp? What if they, you know, when, in addition to salary, they wanted benefits and guaranteed employment? You know, all the things that come with having employees, um, you know, when we look at the balance of, like, look at the NFL, for instance, if you're going to compare this to the NFL, but half of the money that gets made in the NFL ends up in the hands of the players, half ends up in the, in the hands of the, the owners. If you were to apply that model to college football, it would be a huge loss of revenue if the players started to get even, anything even close to half of the money that their labor produces. So I think it's, you know, partly because they have built a system that would be destabilized if you introduce professionalism into it, and also just because they'd lose money and power. There was a point in time where the scholarship was a fair compensation for, you know, for the time and, you know, the benefits that the university received. I mean, it's not nothing to have a four-year uh, education paid for, 
you know, especially as, as we see now what uh, student debt looks like. But at some point in time, that equation tilted so that it was not so inequitable and that the athletes are not being fairly compensated. And yet, you know, the powers that be, whether it's the NCA or athletic administrator, there was no <laughs> sense that it, you know, it, it wasn't in their interest to, to all of a sudden be sharing some of these uh, riches with the athletes. And instead they poured it back into things that benefited them like facilities or coaches salaries or, you know, beefing up staffs. Yeah. Well, it's a fascinating look at something that college football fans have known about for, you know, the years that it's been developing. But I think folks who are not as entrenched in this world might be really surprised to learn about. And um, you both are laying out such a really great illustration of why this stuff is complicated and also why it needs a fix. Billy and David, anything else you want to add about what you'll be following as not just the season, um, you know, unfolds tonight with the national championship, but as the rules around fan collectives are decided at the IRS, at the federal level and at the NCAA level. I'm interested in the, what we talked about earlier, the, the IRS. I'm interested in seeing whether the IRS makes any move to try to crack down on these groups, given the huge amount of money and political power they all have. Remember, they're representing huge fan bases often in, you know, in, you know, half the state is a fan of that particular school. So to take them on would take a lot of political courage. And I'm interested to see if the IRS has it. And I'll be watching from the NCA uh, point of view. Um, Charlie Baker is going to speak at the NCA convention on uh, Wednesday in Phoenix. And so I'll be there listening to see what the next step is in this plan, because um, if collectives are indeed brought in-house, then I I would imagine that we'll see many of these questions that are being raised now about collectives. Uh, collectives will be reined in, and they may not exist in this sort of Wild West environment that they do now. Yeah, we might be looking back on this in a few years and thinking, wow, weren't those some wild... <laughs> some wild times. Um, David Farenthold and Billy Witz are reporters for The New York Times. Thank you both very much for your work and for joining me. Nice talking with you, Libby. Thank you. Thanks for listening to Soundside. And hey, this show is only possible because listeners support us. If you are able to give right now, check out the show notes for a link to donate. And don't forget, you can listen live on KUOW 94.9 FM Seattle at noon and 8 p.m. Monday through Thursday or anytime online at KUOW.org.